0: This is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Hopefully on with our finger on the pulse today as we'll take you to the Grains Research and Development Corporation's research update in Bendigo. One of the topics up for discussion is the expansion of the area being cropped for pulses in Victoria. We'll have a look at some of those numbers, some of the research in that space as well today. Plus, you'll hear from the operator of that Wodonga fake meat factory, which is closing just two years after opening and being opened with a $20 million investment as well. So, can the company take the hit? They'll tell you on the program today. And it looks like there may be another case of mad cow disease, BSE, in Brazil. What does that mean for world markets? And could Australian farmers benefit? We'll look through all. All of that and more today on The Country Hour. I would love you to take part in the program. You can send us a text 0467 842 722. Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Jane McNaughton today. G'day, Jane.
0: Thanks, Warwick. The Federal Agriculture Minister has stared down his state colleagues in Western Australia and confirmed his government's commitment to phase out live sheep exports. Minister Murray Watt joined an online meeting with industry leaders on the government's plans to transition out of the trade yesterday during Federal Cabinet's trip to Western Australia. He also met with WA's Agriculture Minister, Jackie Jarvis, who doesn't support the move to ban sheep exports. Minister Watt says the Western Australian Government won't change the federal government's mind.
2: It's nice secret that uh, Premier McGowan hasn't been supportive of this policy and Minister Jarvis is taking a similar position uh, in supporting the ongoing live export of live sheep from Australia. But I think they also understand that we did go to an election. In fact, we've gone to an election twice now with a commitment to phase out the industry.
0: Is there anything that Minister Jarvis or Premier Mark McGowan could say to you that would change your mind on the future of the live export trade?
2: Look, I don't think so. And I've tried to be very consistent ever since taking on this role as the Federal Agriculture Minister. I've said from day one, and my first visit to Western Australia as the minister was a matter of a month or so after the election. And I met with members of the export industry and farmer groups and a range of others. And I was very clear that we had made an election commitment. We have been elected. And I think Australians expect their governments to deliver on their election commitments rather than walk away from
0: them the northern New South Wales town of Yamba is facing an outbreak of white spot disease which is devastating its prawn industry. It's only the second outbreak in New South Wales and authorities are still trying to work out the source of infection. Sarah Britton is the chief vet for the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries and she says they are working closely with prawn farmers in the area to best manage the outbreak which seems to be spreading. Following the
3: biosecurity direction that was placed on the infected farm we also have put in a control order that has put movement restrictions for that immediate area that impact all the prawns and the commercial and bait fishes as well. And really the point of this is is to allow time to be able to undergo investigations into what the source is, to get surveillance, collect enough samples. So the current order allows for sale of cooked prawns, but we're also then looking at well, you know, a few things outside the box of how we can assist them.
0: This season has been dubbed the worst for spray drift in a number of years, and from today the Environment Protection Authority is hitting the ground in parts of northwest New South Wales to check farmer records and practices. Spray drift has been reported in areas around Narrabri, Moree and Walgett. Carmen Dwyer is Executive Director of Regulatory Operations for the New South Wales EPA and says fines for malicious actions can be up to $250,000 for a company and around half of that for an individual. The community have let us know that there are a number of um, crops that have been damaged from poor practice spraying this season and we don't want that to happen. So we want to make sure that farmers know exactly how they should be applying pesticides. In a way that means that they can look after their property but not have an impact on their community. Farmers shouldn't be worried about the EPA coming onto their site to have a chat with them. We're not looking for the honest mistake. I'm not interested in, we forgot to fill in that box, we didn't, you know, the, it's a bit mucked up that 44 gallon drum is not quite where it's meant to be. We're looking for the people that are deliberately and maliciously doing harms to their community. It's predicted the country's macadamia growers will deliver a record 60,000 ton crop this year, up from nearly 53,000 tons last year. While the forecast is due to spark some optimism in the sector, macadamia growers are facing another drop in farm gate prices from processors, with fears prices will drop below $2 a kilo nut in shell, prices not seen by the local industry for more than a decade. Australian Macadamia Society CEO Claire Hamilton-Bate says the big crop is due to increased plantings in Queensland. The
4: prediction is the the largest crop that we will have seen for Australian macadamia production. Most of that is related to increased plantings coming into production and aligns pretty much with the forecast projection moving forward, lined up with the age of those trees that are, are now coming online.
0: And wine grape growers have reported a frustrating wait to get their crops off in 2023. Port Lincoln grape growers are some of those facing a later than usual vintage due to unseasonable weather. Liz Hunring, Chief Winemaker with Peter Teakel Wines, says it's a matter of finding other jobs to do while she waits. Normally we're
3: sort of around the sort of mid-February, I guess, but because of the really mild Summer leading into sort of Christmas and New Year period and really mild January, we're finding that everything's uh, much later. So it's more like going to be a mid-March kind of start for us. Clare, Barossa, all the same, all, all much later than normal. Yeah, just sort of waiting now. There's sort of um, as much as, you know, we've been able to do um, in the vineyard, setting up and getting ready is sort of been done. So um, it's just sort of waiting for, waiting for the grapes to get ripe. Um, and, yeah, that'll, that'll take a few more weeks.
0: And that's it for Rural News today, was?
1: Thanks very much for that, Jane. Jane McNaughton there taking you through Rural News. Now, just before we kick off on the Country Hour proper today, yesterday we brought you extended coverage of the questions surrounding a duck hunting season in Victoria for 2023. I don't have an update for you on the season. It's still not announced if that's what you're waiting for. Thanks to all your texts and comments yesterday, by the way. But... We did want to update you on our requests to the Victorian government on this because we do have an update. The minister responsible had her department reply and it's a firm no. The minister won't be speaking on the decision-making process behind a duck hunting season in 2023. So we just have to wait. Minister for Outdoor Recreation, Sonia Kilkenny, is the minister who decides if there will be a duck hunting season in Victoria. And quote, her office said she is unavailable for an interview on this. Full stop. That's it. That's all I can tell you at the moment with Sonia Kilkenny refusing to do an interview or at least provide details around the Minister's decision-making process as we wait to see if the Minister will declare a duck hunting season for 2023. Just on the subject of requests as well, we also have a request in with Agriculture Minister Gail Tierney to talk about government's plans for agriculture for the year and a couple of other specific topics which we've provided to them, uh, the minister hasn't responded yet. So we're finding it difficult to get government ministers at least to come on the program or to engage on some pretty important regional decisions at the moment, but we'll continue to make those requests on your behalf. Also on the text line on 0467 842 722, Alan has got in with some comedy for us. We are going to talk about a possible case of Mad Cow BSE In Brazil, on the program shortly, Alan, with a bit of comedy for us, which we all need, don't we? He says, hi, Warwick, two cows standing in a paddock in Brazil. One says, I'm a bit worried about this new outbreak of mad cow disease. The other cow replies, it doesn't bother me. I'm a horse. Thanks. Alan, hopefully I did that text some justice. Thanks for sending it through. Let's get slightly more serious now on the country. Our fake meat or meat substitute maker, V2 Food, says it's sad that it has to close its Wodonga factory on the Victorian New South Wales border. The $20 million factory opened just over two years ago, but the company says changing markets and easier to purchase imports were the reason behind the move to close it. I spoke to CEO Tim York about what this means for the fake meat category.
5: So we're looking to expand further into Asia and the UK. And as part of that, we've really been reassessing what our supply chain needs to be to support that business. Um, The Wodonga site was originally set up to be a single supply point for some specific ingredients, which were not at the time available in the Australian market. And the intention at that time was that that would then support our business as we grew globally. However, what we've learned over the last three years is some of those ingredients are now more readily available in global markets. And particularly with things like COVID, we've understood the sort of the impact of trying to support a global business from Australia and felt that it was more prudent that we would set up a more um, decentralized supply chain model where we would source Um, ingredients for overseas markets in overseas markets
1: yeah so rather than controlling I suppose the the manufacturer of these products yourself you're now moving away to to sort of purchasing them and and putting them together in your products
5: yeah that's right so certainly we're still using our proprietary intellectual property um, but then using third parties to make to our specification
1: can you tell us then the the plan going forward then for the Wodonga factory when is it likely to close
5: Yeah, so it will happen this year. We're still working through plans, but we felt once we had made that decision that we would shut it, that we wanted to be open and transparent with our staff so that everyone could plan accordingly. But we would expect it to close this calendar year.
1: Closing a a factory that, when it was announced, was going to be a $20 million investment in in Wodonga, close to two years after it was opened, seems like a, a pretty big change in focus for the company?
5: Yeah, no, it certainly is. The I guess the, the big decision that's changed or the big facts that have changed in that is two years ago, you were unable to get a lot of the ingredients that we use in our food, but that has markedly changed. And so hence it allows us to have a more flexible, nimble model.
1: A $20 million change in direction though, does that affect the company itself?
5: No, not at all.
1: You've got the, the funds available to, to take that kind of hit?
5: Yeah, no, that's right.
1: What happens to the staff that were working there?
5: Yeah, so we are still working through those plans. I mean, there's a a mix of functions on that side. So there's production, research and development, and then finance. Um, We expect the finance team to stay locally within the region. Um, With the R&D roles, we're looking at how we can relocate those into either our New South Wales or Queensland elements of our business. And then, regretfully, the manufacturing jobs are the ones that will probably go... In terms of headcount, we expect it to be less than ten people to be made um, redundant through this process.
1: And then, in terms of the change in focus that you were saying, so you'll be procuring a lot more of these ingredients on the global market. So, is that a missed opportunity? I imagine for for the local grains production side of Australia getting involved in this market, uh, they're, they're going to miss out to imports here.
5: Well, and we'll still continue to develop with Australian suppliers, but. When you're trying to do business up in Asia, it just makes sense that you source as much as you can close to source. Does
1: this mean more imports in your products that you're selling here locally?
5: No, I think the Australian products will still be mainly made from Australian ingredients.
1: Can you talk widely about this category then that you're operating in, the the meat substitute type category at the moment? There's been a lot of talk and there was a lot of hype around it earlier on in its existence and and a lot of the focus, particularly from business reporting, has been on difficulties in this sector of late. What's your take on on this category itself and and its future?
5: Yeah, so I mean a couple of years ago there was a lot of hype in the category. I think it's brought a lot of players into it. Um, Some of those players are doing well, some aren't. Um, our business in Australia grew at over 50% in the last year, so we still see the, the category quite positively. But certainly there is going to be a shakeout and consolidation in the number of players in it.
1: So is it, has that been, I suppose, the problem when it was a very hyped category? There were so many new entrants and now we're in the period of, of deciding which ones will be here for the long term.
5: Yeah, I think that's right.
1: And you say you'll be closing the Wodonga site this year. Um, in terms of uh, the community, are we talking early the first half or, or second half this year in your view?
5: Uh, it's still to be decided.
1: Not a lot of information there from CEO of V2 Foods, Tim York, but confirmation that the Wadonga factory for V2 Food will close this year and uh, a third party suppliers, particularly those overseas for overseas contracts, will be where they source products from. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 18 minutes past 12. Let's stay, well, somewhat international right now, but it could have big ramifications for Australian producers. The world's largest beef exporting country is moving quickly to test a possible case of BSE or Mad cow disease found in the country. A case of the disease has been found in Brazil, with tests now being sent to Canada for confirmation. The latest case of BSE, well, the last case of BSE was found in Brazil in 2021, and it shut down exports from Brazil to China, the biggest buy, meat buying country, for three months. I, I spoke earlier to Simon Quilty from Global Agri Trends about what this latest development is and what it means. Well,
6: there was a. Uh... Recent um, testing of positive for an atypical variety of mad cow disease, other um, BSE as we know it, um, that was sent through and is on its way to Canada to have it counterproofed um, to ensure um, what it is. So at the moment, yes, there has been a case of mad cow disease, BSE, within Brazil. And Warwick, if you recall back to 2021, when this occurred the last time, there was a three-month ban in place, self-imposed between Brazil and China.
1: So I suppose the the wait is on to see if these tests in Canada show up, the BSE to be a confirmed case, and then this could happen again in terms of closures and so forth?
6: Possibly. At the moment, the health protocol between the two countries, Brazil and China, which was signed back in 2015 it's the obligation of Brazil to report a case to Beijing and then to impose a self embargo on shipments with the you know immediate suspension of exports and that embargo is always meant to be temporary until more clarification is got around you know what the situation is whether it's a aty- atypical or not
1: so Brazil largest beef exporter in the world. What potential ramifications does this have for the world market?
6: It's quite significant. If you remember back then when it happened um, in 2021, at the time they were shipping in excess of 100,000 tonnes of beef into that market, production slowed down dramatically as they looked to divert away. And as you might say, negotiations were between the two governments those negotiations were protracted, there's no doubt. And we did see a lot move across into North America at the time, which then led to the triggering of beef quotas in the North American market. So the significance is there, no doubt, and the potential um, impact on global markets, I think, could be quite extensive if it is protracted, if it's short and sharp and it's put and dealt with quickly then it will be a limited impact, I think, on global markets.
1: And I suppose we're really early days in this and we're still waiting for for a number of confirmations. So at the moment, it's a watching brief?
6: Yes, it is. I think, you know, it's just a matter of watching. But from an Australian point of view, I guess the two markets that will be impacted potentially is obviously China itself. And then within the US as well, as product potentially could be re-diverted. But I think it also places, some interesting dynamics with Korea and Japan, because if suddenly China is not receiving meat out of Brazil, we could see a quick response from China for Australian product, which in turn could see Japan and Korea step back in looking for Australian product as well.
1: And that's the interesting thing, I suppose, for the Australian farmer to be watching in this space is there has been a warming of China and Australian trade Uh, In recent months, we just saw a record month of mutton to China, for example, in January. If China starts looking elsewhere for for red meat, particularly beef, Australia could be in a good position. Is that fair enough to say?
6: I think that's very fair to say, Warwick. And I guess the 11 meat plants that are waiting on getting their licences back to China, we believe that's hopefully within days or weeks that that occurs. The timing couldn't be better. So from an Australian point of view, for once, the stars are aligning Warwick.
1: So as you understand it, what are the steps from here, from this possible BSE case, mad cow case in Brazil? I think
6: that the, the first step is to wait and see what the Canadians um, testing the results of theirs is. If it proves that it is positive and it is a classical um, BSE case, not a atypical, then obviously things get a lot more serious. If it's proven to be atypical, it may be that things are resolved quickly. But saying that, we saw back in 2021, it was two atypical cases that still led to a three-month ban. So I think, Warwick, it's really a bit difficult to say, and really those results are critical from Canada to then understand what the next steps will be.
1: That's Simon Quilty from Global Agri Trends speaking there, and if you want some context over how big Brazil is as a player, particularly in terms of the China market where Australian beef competes. Brazil's the largest exporter of beef in the world, obviously. Last year though, even just to China, they sent 1.1 million metric tonnes of beef to China, which was 40% of China's beef imports. So A BSA case in Brazil is certainly something to watch for the Australian market as well, and we'll keep an eye on it for you here on The Country Hour. Plenty of your texts coming in at the moment. Interesting, actually. Gavin says, uh, finding it hard to get government ministers to talk, you need to make a point of saying it's you requesting the interview. Gavin, uh, we are, don't worry. But we're actually, when we make the, uh, the request, Doing it as an ABC Rural team because um, that way we can try and work with the Minister and get it anytime uh, that suits them rather than when I'm at work or when someone else is at work. We, we try and get the interview because uh, we think that is more important than anything else. Glenn from Moyston says, when does not available become a refusal? Ooh, I think your language is unfortunately inflammatory. Glenn not available becomes a refusal when you say we will speak to the minister anytime, whenever the minister is available and they say they're not available. That is refusing to do an interview because if they wanted to, you can make time in a day. No one is booked out for 24 hours is what I would put to you in this case. 25 past 12 here on the country out. Love your text though. 0467 842 722. If you want to send us a text now. Let's go to the RSPCA in Victoria. Now they have officially launched... Uh, it's election priorities for 2023, looking at the post-election political landscape and what it means for animals. And in this case, certainly agriculture is involved. CEO of RSPCA Victoria, Dr Liz Walker, says the top item on the group's agenda is phasing out conventional battery cages for egg laying chickens by 2036. In line with last year's review, uh, recommendations to update poultry standards.
3: RSPCA is very, very clear that the animal welfare um, implications of the conventional cages, also known as battery cages, are really severe and you can't mitigate them. The hens can't express normal behaviour and there's nothing you can do to make that acceptable. So they need to be phased out and and, and banned. The recommendations from, that have gone to Agmin are for a 2036 phase-out. We would love to see that happen sooner, but we'd also be... Um, happy to to celebrate a 2036 confirmation that there's certainty that they will be banned after 2036. So that's one of our goals. The others are um, ending duck shooting in Victoria. We're very publicly on the record about the great suffering and animal welfare issues associated with duck hunting because of the high wounding rate, um, which is somewhere between 6 and 40%. And even on last year's season would mean something like between 15 and over 100,000 birds would have not been killed outright and would have suffered um, immeasurably as a result of that. Uh, The third one is um, looking at a National Horse Traceability Register as one of the, um, pretty much the only domestic species other than poultry that doesn't have a traceability system available to it. Um, knowing how many horses we have in this country is important for animal welfare because of uh, making sure we're clear on who the owners are, who's responsible and who can be held to account. But also because of um, biosecurity risks, which are, not, which are really quite alive and well for the equine industry around equine influenza, African horse sickness, etc. And the other piece that I think is really important that drives the need for a traceability system is response to emergencies. If an area is going to experience a natural emergency, being able to know how many horses are there and how to get them out and what's going to be required um, would make, make a really big difference to not only the horses, obviously, but also the people who care for them so that the right resources could be sent to help them.
0: Another priority in the agenda for 2023 regarding agriculture is mandatory surveillance in abattoirs. Why do you think that's important?
3: That was one of the recommendations from the Upper House Inquiry uh, recently on the impact of animal activists in agriculture, and that was one of the recommendations. We think that's really important. There are CCTV cameras in many abattoirs, but not all of them. We slaughter, I think, over 150 million animals in Victoria every year. So we think it's important that there's cameras there so that animal welfare issues and incidents are are captured and not missed and that there are improvement opportunities identified and that the regulator can um, keep an eye on these things too so that we can make sure that abattoirs are, are really focused on continuous improvement and they know that the community and the community knows that, um, that there is a monitoring system in place.
0: The banning of duck hunting has been quite high on the RSPCA's agenda for a number of years now in Victoria. There's a mounting amount of pressure on the Victorian Government coming from a multitude of organisations now to ban the practice. Do you think the Government will make a decision to ban? We haven't heard from the Government yet on this issue.
3: No. um, Look, we really hope so and it's, it's fair to say that we are heartened by the high level of discussion in the community and amongst Government over the past few weeks. The data is really clear on this matter, and I think the community understands that too. So what we know is that, as I mentioned before, the pain and suffering of ducks, the wounding rate of six to forty percent, is undeniable. And, uh, and again, management authority has has observed that. There's also some real, really big pressures on duck populations, and they're the despite the the rains over the last uh, few years with the La Nina and what have you, when in the past. Increased water would mean increased habitat would mean increased ducks. We've we've seen a continual decline in game species. It's now the third lowest in 40 years. So there's clearly some stresses on these birds because they're not breeding. So there must be another animal welfare issue in there that's causing them to be stressed. So the sustainability is a question. But really importantly as well, the, um, the community is really um, supportive of a decision to ban duck hunting. The 66% of Victorians saying they oppose it and of that, you know, that's 68% in the metro areas and 61% in regions. So the regions are also supportive of doing that and I think the, the numbers of participants also, um, also don't lie. There's 23,000 or so registered hunters and only 11,000 went hunting last year, it's at maximum it's, you know, about point four percent of the population. I think the numbers are there, the suffering is there, the community support is there, the economic debate is dispatched with and um, it's really time to um end duck hunting.
1: At CEO of RSPCA Victoria, Dr. Liz Walker speaking there with Jane McNaughton about the animal welfare organization and what they're going to lobby the state government for in twenty twenty three. Just to reiterate, we do have a request in with the Agriculture Minister to talk her agricultural priorities for 2023. Hasn't been available for an interview yet. It is 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Let's head to the newsroom and find out what's making regional news headlines for you today. Peter Sanders is
7: in the newsroom for you. G'day, Peter. G'day Warwick, making local news this hour. The body of a 34-year-old Tasmanian man has been recovered after he was thrown from a capsizing boat near Mildura on Sunday morning. The man had been attending a Bucks party when a dinghy he was in capsized. The body was located at about 125 on Monday, following a large-scale search by Victoria and New South Wales Police, with assistance from New South Wales Police Divers. In a statement, police said while the body is yet to be formally identified, it is to believe... It is believed to be that of the missing man. A report is being prepared for the coroner. Community group Community Action for the Chalet are calling for Parks Victoria and Regional Development Victoria to begin upgrades at Mount Buffalo's Chalet after a second expression of interest call-out failed. Up to $2 million was available for a cafe operator's fit-out across uh, costs and necessary upgrades. But Chair David Jacobson says spending the money now will give the next EOI process a better chance of success. A resident in Glenelg Shire says she'll continue to fight a proposal for a 46-hectare abalone farm in Portland's Dutton Way as it goes to a two-week special hearing today. Developers Yamba Aquaculture are seeking a special conditions overlay on 46 hectares of land for the aquaculture facility. The approval would circumvent a VCAT rejection of the abalone operation made in 2020. Dutton Way resident Rachel Madushka says dozens of concerned locals aren't opposed to the farm, but rather its location and proximity to homes and businesses. Grampians Community Health is looking for more workers to help elderly people stay at home. The Western Victoria Service needs six more community and domestic support workers for elderly and disabled residents in Stoll. GCH took these service off the hands of Horsham Council in 2020. There are information sessions on Tuesday, February 28th and March 7th coming up. And Balok Shire is set to join many other councils across Victoria in withdrawing from in-home age and disability care. It was It has made an in-principle decision to offload respite, personal and general home care and home maintenance in response to the federal government's new funding model. Consultation with affected residents is now underway. CEO Wayne O'Toole says the council is set to receive a report on the matter at the April 12th meeting. And Warwick, that's all in news headlines. Thanks very much for that. Peter
1: Sanders there with regional news headlines for you.
0: The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Many of your texts are coming in on the program now just before we head to the Weather Bureau just on what the RSPCA is prioritising for 2023, specifically on duck hunting. Uh, Many of you taking issues with the comments about there not being many ducks around. This one says, please was. We've never seen so many ducks around breeding. This one saying, seriously, where is uh, the lady from the RSPCA living? Low duck numbers, species, open your eyes. They're all eating my pastures. Come on now, says that text Uh, on the issue of politicians not being available to speak to this program. This one says most politicians have a bit of a problem remembering that they work for us, not the other way around. Their wages are paid by the taxpayer, not their political bosses. And on the RSPCA again, Ian saying, Warwick, chickens don't lay eggs, hens lay eggs. Ian getting very specific there. Maybe, Ian, you can answer the question for me. What came first, then the chicken? Or the egg? Or should we be putting hen into that sentence? I think the horse could have bolted there. Let's head to the Weather Bureau and find out what's happening around our state. On the line today, I could be getting myself into trouble as we go along with these text messages. Michael Efron can save me, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Michael. G'day, work. How are we looking around the state?
8: Yeah, pretty settled. Uh, quite cool in, in the south. We did have a very weak cold front move through. Bath straight overnight and this morning, so cloudy with some patchy drizzle in, in the south to start the day, but we've seen that drizzle uh, contract to east Gippsland. It should uh, mostly clear through this afternoon, and the cloud elsewhere in the south are starting uh, to break up. Uh, pretty clear through the north, but with those uh, winds from the south-southeast relatively cool uh, in the south. We're looking at Top temperatures today of 22 at Ballarat and Bansdale, 24 at Sale, Hamilton up to 26. Pretty north still uh, across them, pretty warm I should say, north of the Divide, uh, 27 for Bendigo, uh, Echuca up to 30, Swan Hill 33, Mildura 37, so quite a difference uh, from north to south. And those winds over uh, central parts of the state will be quite fresh uh, throughout this afternoon. But as we head into Wednesday and uh, Thursday, we we do see a high-pressure system moving to the east of Tasmania. So the wind's starting to turn warmer uh, northeasterly. So on uh, Wednesday, uh, mostly sunny conditions, uh, apart from some morning fog in the south and east. Then uh, top temperatures around the mid-20s in the south and high-20s to low-30s across the north, even up to 37 at Mildura, 32 at Seymour and Wangaratta, a warnable 29, uh, Ballarat 31, Bansdale 24, Sale 23. So slightly milder over Gippsland, but uh, pretty warm elsewhere. And then uh, onto the Thursday, we do see the winds tending slightly more northerly. So uh, in terms of Gippsland, a little bit warmer than uh, the Wednesday, looking at 29 for Bansdale, 30 at Sale. Elsewhere, typically uh, low to mid-30s, so even up to 37.00. Uh, at Mildura, but staying dry and sunny on uh, Thursday. And then on Friday, we do see uh, northerly winds continuing and does mean a, a pretty warm day across the state. We'll see temperatures in the south are around 32 to 35, across the north, 35 to 40 degrees, and those fire dangers starting to pick up as well. And that's ahead of a change, which looks like moving through on Saturday. Um, at this stage, it looks like entering the west in the afternoon and, and then pushing into central parts at night. So cooler southwesterly winds developing behind that change. Maybe some showers as well, uh, more likely in the southwest, but ahead of that, still looking at temperatures in uh, the low to mid-30s, but uh, also elevated fire dangers uh, before that change arrived. So uh, worth keeping an eye on uh, the Bureau's website for the latest warning information as we get closer. Uh, to the weekend. Then on Sunday, with southwesterly winds across the state, we do see cooler conditions, temperatures in the south around 22 to 26, and then across the north, uh, 26 to 34 degrees, pretty settled uh, conditions. And then on Monday, uh, not too much change with the high-pressure ridge continuing to uh, extend across southern Victoria. We'll see uh, temperatures in the low to mid-20s in the south, high-20s to low-30s, Uh, across the north, but I guess one feature of uh, the next week is uh, very little rainfall um, expected with uh, continuation of dry conditions that we've seen uh, for much of this month.
1: So uh, I suppose then, warnings-wise, Michael, what should we be on the lookout for?
8: Yeah, so potentially fire weather warnings uh, towards the end of the week, especially during the Saturday with a wind change uh, maybe moving through. But also uh, we could see some heat wave warnings issued uh, throughout this week, especially for parts of the southwest where we do see some pretty warm conditions, uh, temperatures in uh, the mid-30s for much of this week.
1: Brilliant. Anything else we need to know, Michael? I think that's it. Brilliant. Thanks very much for the update. Thanks, Warwick. Michael Efron, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast there. A- uh, shearing shed's got a big upgrade we're going to hear about that in just a moment after that though we'll take you to Bendigo to the grains research and Development corporation's uh, research update which is going on in Bendigo today and tomorrow a lot of uh, new uh, information being provided to growers and also talk about the change in what is being grown here as well Angus Furley is there'll we'll, we'll go to him shortly uh, and plenty more of your texts keep them coming zero four six seven eight four two seven double two
0: On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour.
1: But this sounds interesting. A historic shearing shed in the Western District is set to remain in use for many years to come after receiving a shiny new roof. Uh, The Gazette Wool Shed, which is believed to be up to 150 years old, is still favoured by its owners, the Moyle family, over more modern constructions because of the cooling effect provided by its thick Blue Stone walls. Nick Moyle spoke with Angus Verley about the history of the property and its iconic wool shed.
4: As you know Angus there were quite a few large established properties in the western districts and Bazette, the property that we currently have where we run our cattle stud on is uh, one of those original properties uh, that was established around the 1860s and uh, it was originally a uh, squatting lease and, and it was and the first titles came up in were allocated in around the 1860s, early 1870s.
9: Okay, so uh, very early in the piece, and and then it didn't take long for the for the shearing shed to be constructed.
4: No, that was that was built around the same time that it was settled, and it used to be a very a large sheep run. I think it was 22,000 acres that ran from Gazette into Penzhurst, and uh, so the shearing shed, Bluestone shearing shed, uh, went up first, and it was actually built. Next to a spring, so they could wash the sheep prior to going into the shed. Still today, there's a big cauldron where the water is heated, and they put the she- run the sheep through like a um, a big uh, plunge dip, and it was uh, made entirely just to wash the sheep prior to shearing.
9: So the shed, Nick, it's well, let's say around that sort of 150 year old mark, still in use, but it was getting a bit tired.
4: I was yeah. The corrugated iron that they used to use in the old days was just fantastic quality, but um, after 150 years, the joint—you know, where the sheets join on the on the roof—it um, they were starting to get holes and rusting through, and there was water coming through. So we've um, re-roofed the entire shed and also put. Um, sloping pens on the uh, in the catching pens, so it's easy for the shearers to um, drag them out onto the board and it's a fully workable shearing shed and it's beautifully cool uh there in summer when we shear it because of the um, bluestone shed it's fantastic
9: do you know where the stone would have come from
4: um we have plenty of local stone around us so we're on the uh volcanic line that runs from through Mount through to geelong and so there's you know, the several um, volcanoes, or I think there's half a dozen volcanoes on that fault line and uh, we are in between two at Mount Napier and Mount Rouse so there's a lot of stone towards the back of our property.
9: And what was the thought process? Were you always determined to, to keep that shed? You didn't think it maybe it, it had had its day and and you'd put a new shed in?
4: No, we like to well, we've, we've re-roofed um, most of the buildings here and we like to preserve the existing buildings so the wall shed and with, there was a two-storey stables here as well that we have re-roofed and and done up as well that we do sometimes use as a wedding venue. Preserving the uh, history is uh, certainly a part of our uh, certainly an interest of ours.
9: And apart from the roof, Nick, how's the rest of the building holding up?
4: No, it's holding up beautifully. I mean, with the um, underneath the floor there is water nearly for twelve months of the year where the spring comes up underneath, and uh, that's where they got the water from to wash the sheep so some of the footings just where the water is is, are quite um are a bit loose but the rest of the shed is um in very good
9: order and that's impressive given its age and i mean there are lots of old sheds out there a lot of them in varying states of disrepair and probably not a lot of this vintage i imagine that that are still in use
4: no there's not and we do have a modern Shearing shed on our property as well that came with another uh, parcel of land we bought, but we don't use that because it's um, it's a lot hotter and uh, not as good a you know it's not as good to work in. So these old sheds um, with the stone, it certainly makes it a lot cooler for the shearers and everyone working in the shed.
9: What's the temperature difference like when on a hot day when you walk into the shed?
4: Oh, I think it'll be it'll be five degrees. I reckon you it drops um and on a, you know on a thirty five degree day that's quite significant.
9: So now with the shiny new roof, how long do you think it'll be good for?
4: (laughs) Well, uh, they're all all single sheets, so there shouldn't be a point of rust. So I'm hoping, and it's colourbond, so I'm hoping that it'll be uh, there for our um, grandchildren.
1: That's Nick Moyle, proud owner of the Gazette Woolshed, which has a shiny new roof. Speaking there to Angus Verley, it's lovely to hear about some of these older buildings, 150 years old. Still in operation, can still find a use in agriculture. Let's take you to some more Angus Verley right now on the country. Our cropping farmers from around the state are getting an update on research to produce better and hopefully more disease free crops uh, today. That's because the GRDC research updates on In Bendigo, and our reporter Angus Verley is there. G'day, Angus, take us there. What's on the agenda? Yeah, g'day Warwick, that's right,
9: I am here in Bendigo at Alumbra Theatre for the Grains Research Development Corporation's research update, so really What's on the agenda? Well, we're hearing about the latest and greatest in grains research. Uh, who's here? Several hundred people here. and it's, it's the full spectrum of everyone who's involved in the grains industry, I suppose, from those academics and uh, PhD candidates and researchers uh, through to farmers and ag students, lots of young people around here today. What's on the agenda, we've heard this morning from Grains Australia, that's that new organisation that's taking over those classif- classification roles from various other organisations. Uh, we've also heard from Alan Mayfield who was talking about some of the the world's best grain growers. We heard a couple of weeks ago on The Country Hour from Tim Lamminen in Lincolnshire in England who'd just grown an 18 tonne of the hectare wheat crop. So. Bellum, he's been over there, he's seen Tim, he's seen some of these premium grain growing areas and speaking through uh, what's involved, how you do achieve those sorts of yields. Uh, lots of chemical themed discussions to be had here, some of the new herbicides that are coming online, that, that have been online and have, have been a learning curve in the past couple of seasons and then new ones that are, are still to come online. Lots of talk as well about some subsoil issues, the, the different things researchers are doing, lots of them based out of the Agriculture Victoria site at Horsham, uh, putting various things down into the subsoil, whether it's hay or straw or, or manure and seeing whether yields can be improved that way. Uh, Dale Gray from Agriculture Victoria is going to have a weather forecast for us as it's a, always a welcome element of some of these conferences uh, water is another topic again very topic cool after last season uh, a very very wet season and it was interesting I just heard a presenter noting that he um, had typically uh, water a water logging or water limited yield is is not the problem but it, it was so last season so discussing that also talks on again looking overseas at some of those. I suppose, growing regulations on chemical use. We've heard on the Country Hour as well about the European Union. It seems likely, perhaps, uh, that it may ban or or deregister or or not renew the registration of glyphosate uh, at the end of this year. I think 15th of December that registration runs out. So, yeah, I suppose concern from people here reflecting on what that would mean well, I guess the the initial flow on implications for expert boards, and then whether um, we'd look to adopt some of those things here. But I'll I'll turn, though, to that issue that I mentioned earlier about disease because it was a really, really big problem last year, people trying to manage diseases in in really unfamiliarly wet conditions and, and I suppose encountering diseases that they perhaps haven't seen a lot in the past and I am joined by someone who knows a lot more about crop diseases than myself and that's Dr Joshua Fanning, Pulse Pathologist with Agriculture Victoria. Josh. know. Hey Angus, how are you going? Pretty good Josh and talk me through what your experience was as a disease expert and a plant pathologist last season watching diseases run rampant in particular areas. Well, last
10: year was probably a pathologist's um, dream, but a grower's nightmare, I suppose you could call it. Um, There was lots of of disease across multiple crop species across most of Victoria. So we had, um, in pulse crops, botrytis was our biggest issue that we saw, particularly in bean crops, and it was due to growers growing susceptible varieties. We also saw other other crop disease, such as sclerotinia white mould in our lentils, um, and we've also seen other diseases in our cereals, such as stripe rust or
9: Septoria. So growers growing susceptible varieties was that not necessarily their fault, where they didn't didn't expect the disease pressure because they wouldn't in traditional or typical growing conditions.
10: Yeah, we had a really conducive season to disease last year, so that was just the number of days that we had sort. Of had moisture, leaf wetness, as well as the amount of rainfall that we got. So we had moisture radiating out of the soil, creating that canopy humidity, as well as just that prolonged wet season, milder temperatures, so we didn't get really cold weather, and that canopy just didn't really dry out, which just created the most conducive environment for our crop disease. So it was just
9: unrelenting for those crops, so they just didn't get a chance to, to, to grow out of those diseases?
10: Yeah, it was just unrelenting, so it wasn't a typical season that we would see and so those crops that were susceptible, or the varieties that were susceptible, that really allowed them to basically express that lack of resistance. So we knew they were going to get disease if it was a bad season, it was just we didn't think it was going to be that conducive a season for disease. What sort of losses uh, occurred in the worst cases? I prefer not to talk about the losses, but sure. <laughs> the losses the losses um, in beans we saw complete crop failure in multiple crops. Where
9: there was a particular variety that was susceptible?
10: Any susceptible variety in beans, so there was a few out there such as Fiesta and Farrah, but our PBA Bendox um, were particularly susceptible as well, um, so we did see complete crop failure, but where growers grew more resistant varieties we probably didn't see complete crop failure um, but we did see significant yield losses um, and, yeah, up to complete crop failure, as I said.
9: And your susceptibility, your disease susceptibility, susceptibility ratings, did they stand up last year? Did they play out as you'd rated them? Look,
10: in beans, certainly. Um, in our lentils, probably not so much. We did see and we did tell people to um, watch out for some varieties. So there are some varietal changes that are coming, and I'll mention a couple of them. Um, We did put a provisional status on varieties like PBA Jumbo 2, GIA Leader, PBA Hallmark XT and PBA Kelpie XT last year. And we really highlighted that last year's updates and in presentations for people to watch out for those varieties a little bit more closely. Um, And this year we've seen those varieties get downgraded. So GIA Leader and PBA Hallmark XT have both gone from a moderately resistant to a moderately resistant to moderately susceptible rating and PBA Kelp XT went from an MRMS
9: um, down to a moderately susceptible rating. Well last year it was a tough season for a lot of pulses, the long-term trend is a huge expansion in their popularity, moving into new areas, making up a larger portion of growers' programs. Is that a trend that's going to continue?
10: I would think so. They, they certainly play a significant part in our rotation. They're highly profitable if we choose less susceptible varieties and we manage disease. Um, and there are some varieties out there that do have good resistance,
9: which can really go a long way. I should say, too, Josh, uh, you were awarded this morning the GRDC's 2023 Emerging Leader Award for the southern region. That uh, You must be pretty stuffed about that. It was very unexpected, is all I'll say. Uh, very modest, Josh. No worries. We'd better leave it there, and I'd better get back to you, Warwick.
1: Thank you very much for that, Angus Angus Burley there on location at the GRDC updates, which are going on in Bendigo as we speak and uh, we'll continue tomorrow as well. You'll hear much more in the way of stories coming out of that part of the world over the coming days too. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep an update on you, many of you. Uh, Well, just talking to Ian, texted earlier and said, Warwick, chickens don't lay eggs, hens lay eggs. I said, Hens, chicken, it's like saying cattle produce meat, but there's also cows and steers and heifers. Uh, anyway, many of you having your say, pulling me up on this, and I'm enjoying it as well. Uh, Nigel in Vespa says, I readily agree with that chap wholeheartedly. was snakes bite, bees sting, hens lay eggs. Thank you very much for that, Nigel. Um, bees sting, though, but male bees don't sting, Nigel. So should we be saying drones sting? Or Queen Bee, Queens and Drone Sting. Or am I getting confused there as well? Love it when you hold me to account on this program. It sends us into some very interesting locations. But one location we always end up on the Country Hour is the livestock markets. Let's head there now. Uh, $64. dollars plenty to get through today we'll start with the cattle market reports here on the country hour and we'll start in Wodonga Leanne Dax is on site for us there good afternoon Leanne
11: good afternoon 1200 cattle sold to the usual contingent of buyers it was a very mixed yarding causing some big price fluctuations which was all quality driven trade cattle were few with the vealers making up the bulk of the offering there was a reasonable supply of heavy cattle suitable for export Along with the mixed yarding of just under 500 cows, field jumped 20 cents on the improved quality, 350 to 435. Trade steers too few to quote, 340 to 410. Feeder steers, medium weight, were firm, 340 to 4 dollars. Feeder heifers were also unchanged, medium weights, 330 to 375. Trade heifers were unchanged, 310 to 360. Heavy steers to feed on, 330 to 390. Bullocks were back seven, 330 to 380. Heavy cows... Run changed to 3 cents better, 286 to 315. Lena grades were back 10 cents, quality related, 210 to 279. Leanne
1: Ducks, MLA. Thank you very much for that, Leanne. And as we were talking about earlier in the program, if you missed it, there has been. A case of BSE or mad cow in Brazil, uh, probably atypical, which means it's the one-off rather than one that can spread through the cattle herd. But these tests are on their way to Canada to get confirmed, and it'll be interesting to watch how cattle markets in Australia respond if that is the case. And there's another uh, self-imposed ban on Brazilian exports, particularly to China. We'll continue along the cattle market run now. Though Nicole Varley has the shepherd and cattle details details
12: for you today. Good afternoon. Well, the numbers remain tight, although up slightly on last sale as a few additional export cattle were penned. There were 735 exports, 275 trade. A larger field of export operators were present. Quality lifted as the majority of the beef, heifers and cows had plenty of weight and condition. Dairy cows were less visible, but there was an excellent display of heavy Hereford cross bullocks that met stronger competition this week. Export grades were firm to a few cents dearer. It was a much improved but smaller yarding of young cattle. Greater numbers of vealers were penned and fewer yearlings. There were several pen lots of quality bee muscled European bred steers and heifers. Prices jumped for the top end of the calves. Vealers and restockers remained active. Best of the bee muscled vealers, 379 to 490 cents to processors. Yearling steers ranged from 365 to 436, while the yearling heifer portion, 330 to 415, averaging around 378. This is Nicole Valley from Shepparton.
1: Thank you very much for
12: that, Nicole. Let's
1: move ourselves on to the sheep and lamb market reports for you. Uh, we'll head to Shiona Lamb, who has that information for us from Ballarat. Good afternoon, Shiona.
13: Good afternoon. Lamb supply remains similar at $21,500 drawn for. Quality improved throughout the yarding. From pine to excellent, all the usual buying group attended and operated in a stronger market across all categories. All trade lambs with good finish sold from 4 to $10 a head dearer While secondary lambs were firm, heavy export lambs sold to a top of $2.90 a head and were $3 to $7 a head stronger on last week's levels. Store buyers were more active, putting pressure on processors on the lighter lambs, selling $4 to $15 a head dearer in places. Light lambs back to the paddock under 18 kilos, selling $28 to $147 a head. And lambs to feed on over 18 kilos sold $134 to $172 a head. Lambs to the trade to suit MK orders under 18 kilo sub 122 to 144, lambs to the trade 18 to 22, sub 138 to 184, 22 to 24 kilo lamb sub 168 to 207. There is still 12500 sheep cheap to be sold. This is Shiana Lam at Ballarat for MLA.
1: Thank you very much for that, Shiana. That's just about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. Yeah, well, We can check the text line one more time if you'd like. We've got a little bit of time left together. Uh, howsie says, Warwick, that question of who came first, the chicken or the egg? It was the rooster. Lul. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I've got another one here saying, the egg came first because dinosaurs laid eggs. End of story. This is not the place I thought I was going to be as well. Uh, what are chicken roosters called? P.S. Chicken Nuggets isn't the right answer. Should have I read that? I don't know, G, but there you go. That's probably given you great enjoyment as well. And on the subject of bees and do bees sting, Mick says from Bell Ranald. come on, Warwick, can you be more specific? B puns is a whole topic for another day. Let's not go there right now. You remember you can always podcast the Country Hour. You can go back and listen to any show you'd like with news and information there and you can get a lot of that news and information from ABC Rural online at abc.net.au slash rural until tomorrow when we'll be back at the same time with another Country Hour. I hope you have a great afternoon and we'll catch you then.